Hey, what's up? Thanks for listening to the Give Me Understanding podcast. I'm the host, Aaron Dodson. Psalm 119, verse 34, best describes this podcast. The psalmist wrote in the long ago, Give me understanding, and I shall keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. This is the podcast where I discuss the sacred text, and I do my best to help myself and others understand it. This is a conclusion of, I think, 16 episodes with the title or theme, There's a Striking Contrast. This one will be where I tie up any loose ends or make some concluding thoughts in regard to how there is a striking contrast between the Christianity that we learn from the pages of the New Testament and what we learn from the denominational world, what is practiced and what is most commonly accepted in Christendom. It matters because Jesus has all authority. Some people read through the New Testament and they will acknowledge, sure, Christ is the founder of the church. Sure, there's one body, there's one faith, there's one baptism. Christ has all authority. They were called Christians. They were described with different God-given names that honor God. Sure, there's only one gospel, and the Bible remains the same. Sure, the Lord adds people to the church. Sure, sound doctrine is necessary to be saved. Sure, in the first century times, Christians were called priests and saints. Sure, absolutely, there were pastors or elders over each church. And yes, faith without works is dead. And yes, it is possible to apostatize from God's grace, to throw away one's blessings, if you will. And yes, they took the Lord's Supper on Sunday. And yes, they baptized by immersion. And they baptized people who were penitent and believers. And and, and yes, yes, the Bible says remission of sins, Acts 2.38. Yes, yes, it says those things. And yes, the New Testament, we're lived by it today, not the Old Testament. Sure, sure, yes. And yes, it's true. Every time it's mentioned in the New Testament about worship and music, it only specifies singing. Yes, but, but... That doesn't mean that we have to do it that way. God doesn't care how we do it. All God really cares about is whether or not we're sincere and we mean what we're doing. Is that true? If it is, dear listener, if someone is telling you that or you encounter individuals who tell you that or you believe that, dear listener, what verse in the Bible teaches that God only cares if you are sincere? He doesn't care about truth. He doesn't care about you following the pattern that is set forth in Scripture. That He doesn't care about you doing what He says. He only cares if you quote-unquote believe in Him in your heart. That you quote-unquote trust Him. Folks, the Bible teaches very clearly that if we believe God and we trust God, we will obey God. Hebrews chapter 11 teaches that emphatically. That the individuals listed in the Faith Hall of Fame were individuals who believed God 
and obeyed God because they trusted God. It does matter how we serve and how we worship, and we are to serve God and worship God according to His instructions. We can't do it just however we want to. But there are many people in the religious world who think that way. Joshua chapter 24, I mentioned this verse in one of the previous Striking Contrast episodes. Joshua said just prior to his death in what we know as his final public address of the nation, he said, Joshua 24, 14, Now therefore fear the Lord, serve Him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. How? How are they to serve the Lord? Fear Him and serve Him in sincerity. Yes, sincerity is important. Sincerity means you are genuine. You truly care. You truly want to love God and do what is right in His sight. You are not playing or pretending or acting. You're not doing it for show. You are sincerely wanting to please God. Okay, is that all that matters? That a person be sincere? No, it's not all that matters. It's very important, but it's not all that matters. Truth also matters. Joshua said, serve him in sincerity and in truth. And when they did that, it required them to do something. Put away the gods that their fathers served and serve the Lord. Serve the Lord, not what their fathers served. And so many in our time need to hear that. Put away what your mother or your father, your grandmother, your grandfather, your aunt, your uncle, your cousin, etc., etc. Put away what they've done. Don't let that be your faith. Do what God says. Serve the Lord. Serve Him in sincerity and in truth. Jesus had something to say about this as well. And this was mentioned in a previous Striking Contrast episode. Jesus said, in context of the Samaritan woman and the conversation he had with her, she brought up the subject of worship with him. And Jesus very clearly taught that the hour was coming and now was, now is, in that time, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. So he describes true worshipers as being those who worship in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. So it's not some just mere neat idea to worship in spirit and truth. That's not just something we say. It's something that we must believe in, that we must learn, and that we must practice from the heart. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. Such what? Those that worship Him in spirit and in truth. True worshipers. Now watch this, verse 24, Jesus said, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Both are necessary. Spirit would be equivalent to sincerity with my human spirit, with my heart, with my mind. Jesus often corrected, rebuked, and chided the religious leaders and the bulk of the Pharisees of his day who were so good at seemingly serving God on the outside. But on the inside, their heart was far from God. Matthew 15, 8 and 9. They were not worshiping from the heart and with the heart. 
nor were they worship nor were they worshiping according to truth. So in our day and time, all the things that I have covered in this striking contrast series, sometimes people come along and say, Yeah, I believe in all those things. You know, Jesus founded the church, he's got all authority. They wore the name Christian. They used scriptural descriptions of the church. They would only preach one gospel. The Bible doesn't change. The Lord adds the saved to the church. Sound doctrine's important. Christians were called priests and saints, and they had a plurality of elders over each church, and faith without works is dead. And yes, the possibility of apostasy is described in Scripture. They took the Lord's Supper on Sunday. They immersed, and they did it uh, in the name of Jesus, and they did it uh, upon those or to those who were repentant, that is, penitent and believers. And yes... Yes, I, I, I believe you, they'll say, should be baptized. Now, they won't say for the exact reasons that Jesus and the apostles said, but they'll say, yeah, you should be baptized, etc. And yeah, each time music is mentioned in the New Testament, it doesn't mention mechanical instruments of music. Many people will acknowledge that and admit that, but they'll say, but that doesn't mean we have to do it that way. That doesn't mean that it's wrong if we delegate authority to other individuals or we wear other names like you know a, you know like a, a apostolic or baptist or catholic or disciples or uh evangelical or um episcopalian or uh, just just kind of going there through the uh, through the alphabet <laughs> each letter you know sadly there's a denomination for uh nearly every letter of the English alphabet. They'll say, and, and we do preach one gospel, but they don't preach the authority of Christ, and they don't teach baptism. They don't teach the one church. Instead, they teach that, you know, as long as you believe in Jesus, that's all that really matters. You don't have to... You don't, you don't have to obey God in all these other particulars as though these other particulars are not God's will, that they're just honorable mentions. They're just cute notations in Scripture about all these different specifics that God set up in the early church. What is the New Testament for? Well, let me say, I say this often if you've listened to me uh, <clears throat> of any length, you know this. The Bible was not written to us, but it was written for us. And by that I mean the first century was the original audience, the first century churches and individuals to whom they were written. Those were the original audience, and we must acknowledge that. But the gospel is the word of God that lives and abides forever, 1 Peter 1, 25. So there are things that apply to us today because the Great Commission was to last till the end of the age, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. So there are verses that apply to us. And yes, there are some things in the gospel, that is in the New Testament pages, that do not apply to us. That is, we do not... Uh, are not expected to obey uh, or to follow something that is mentioned. For example, greet each other with a holy kiss. Well, they physically kissed each other. Well, that's that that was something that the early church was instructed to do because it was a common practice, and it, it expressed the fellowship. It it acknowledged the fellowship, and 
<clears throat> the common practice of the first century was to greet each other with a kiss. And so God regulated how Christians were to greet each other with a kiss. A holy kiss, not a sensual kiss or otherwise kiss. But folks, that doesn't mean that today we have to greet each other with a physical kiss. That's an example of how a particular verse does not apply to us. Now, can we learn something from that that we need to do? Yes. We, we need, when we greet one another, we need to do it in a way that's holy and respectful. Absolutely. And that's what I mean. But those who want to dodge plain teaching of the New Testament regarding the authority of Christ, the one church, the one baptism, the, the conditions of salvation, for example, the scriptural worship of the church. People who want to ignore these things will say, well, those are just honorable mentions in the scripture. We don't have to do those things. But again, I've already addressed this from Jesus, what he said, that we must worship God in spirit and in truth. We know that God's word is truth, John 17, 17. So that necessitates us to study, to dig deep, to determine, to ascertain what is it that is not temporary, but what is it that is permanent that God wanted the church to do then, that he wants us to do now, that he wants us to follow and he wants us to practice today. Folks, folks, it's right there. It's not hard. The things that they were taught regarding the founder of the church and his authority and the name Christian. There's no other name under heaven given among, by, given among men whereby we must be saved. We know what the scriptural descriptions of the church are from passages like Romans 16, 16, 1 Corinthians 1, 2, Acts 20, verse 28. We know what the one gospel is, and I've talked about that at length. It's who Jesus is, what he's done, and what he taught. That's the one gospel. And if we veer from that, we are anathema. We're damned. If we change the fundamental facts of the gospel, for example, being born again, and we say you don't have to be baptized to be born again, then we are changing the very fundamental nature of the gospel because the very fundamentals of the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And we contact the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ through water baptism according to Romans 6, 3, and 4. Romans 6, 17, and 18. According to Acts 8, 35, and 36. See, here's water. What hinders me to be baptized? The Bible remains the same and we can't rewrite things or or write our own doctrines because the Bible stays the same and it can't be changed. And we don't join. We don't join these human-founded denominations. We should not seek authority in creeds or councils or in religious leaders. We should seek to wear names that wear the name that glorifies Christ, Christian, not the names that glorify men. And on and on I could go with the list on that. Um, you've got holiness, uh, Jehovah's Witness, uh, you've got uh, Mormon, uh, you've got 
Pentecostal. Um, you got what are some others that come to mind? I've mentioned Methodist. You know, on and on the list goes. These are not names or descriptions or designations that are found in Scripture. So why would you do otherwise? Why would you come along and say, "Well, that's okay as long as you believe in Jesus"? You wouldn't. And here's what I here's what I want to start moving toward as I start to try to draw this to a close. You wouldn't learn that from the pages of the Scriptures. You would not learn from the pages of Scripture that the church has a human founder like Joseph Smith or John Wesley or John Smith. You wouldn't learn that there are many bodies. It's okay. It doesn't matter what body you belong to. You can call it the body of Christ even though it doesn't believe and practice the doctrines of Christ. You wouldn't learn that from the pages of the New Testament. You would not learn the names and descriptions of men that are on billboards and signs and websites and church buildings today from the pages of the New Testament. There's a striking contrast. You would not learn. You would not learn from the pages of Scripture that a person needs to join a church or even the church. You don't join you wouldn't learn that from the pages of the New Testament. You would not learn that honesty is the only thing that matters. Honesty is very, very important, but so is Scripture. We can't say that sincerity only is all that matters, yet so many do. Folks, there's a striking contrast. You would not learn from the pages of the New Testament where one church had one pastor over each congregation. You would not learn that. But, but you do learn that from denominationalism. You don't learn faith only saves from the pages of the New Testament. But you do if you jump through. You do learn that if you, learn, if you jump through theological hoops and you read commentaries and you read the writings of the Reformed writers and you, and you read men today that can word things really well like John MacArthur and others. But you wouldn't learn that from the pages of the New Testament. You wouldn't learn the idea that one cannot fall from grace, that once a person is saved, they can never so sin so as to be lost. You would not learn that from the pages of the script. But you do learn that from denominationalism. You do learn that from the doctrines of men. You would not learn from a study of the scriptures that the church can take the Lord's Supper whenever they want to, that God doesn't care, that God didn't set it up a certain way. You wouldn't learn from the pages of the New Testament that a person can be baptized by sprinkling water on their head or pouring water with a bottle or a cup or a bowl. You would not learn from the pages of the New Testament that baptism is not water baptism, that the one baptism, Ephesians 4, 4 through 5, is not the baptism of the Great Commission because it is. You would learn from the pages of the Scriptures that baptism is to be immersion in water and it's for the remission of sins. You wouldn't learn from the pages of the Scriptures that Baptism is just some spiritual baptism that you don't need to be immersed in water in the name of Christ. But you do learn that from denominationalism. You do learn that from popular religious leaders. And <clears throat> you do not learn 
from the pages of scripture of the scriptures that baptism is just to join a church or as an outward sign of an inward grace and no telling how many millions of people believe that idea but they would not have learned that and they didn't learn and they never will learn that from the scriptures because the scriptures don't teach that every time baptism is mentioned and salvation is mentioned in the same verse or the same context, baptism always precedes salvation. Always. Always. Baptism is never described as an outward sign of an inward grace. Yet millions of people will go to their grave and they will go to the judgment seat of Christ believing that because someone told them that. Someone told them that. Someone they loved told them that. Never will you read in the scriptures that a person is to be baptized to show they're already saved. But you'll hear that in denominationalism. You'll hear that from religious leaders all across this globe. You'll read it in commentaries and so-called study Bibles. You'll read it there, but you won't read it in the scriptures. No, and you can't piece together verse over here and a verse over there and a verse over here and a verse over there out of their context to prove that a person is to be baptized to show they're already saved. No, no, you won't. And there is no principle, no time signature principle that would teach we need to be saved just like the thief on the cross. You would not learn that from the pages of Scripture. You would not learn from the gospel beginning on the day of Pentecost forward that the thief on the cross who is penitent is an exact example of what we today must do. Why? Because he died before the, the gospel of Christ was preached for the first time in its fullness. He could not be baptized in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Jesus had not died, been buried, and resurrected yet. So the penitent thief on the cross does not serve as a catch-all example for all people to be saved today. Yet denominationalism screams that all the time. It's as though he's the only person in the Bible that matters. And the same principle is true of godly Abraham, Moses, Elijah, all the people under the old code, we need to follow their attitude, their example of attitude. We need to follow their example of godliness and penitence and obedience. But the particulars of what I must do to become a Christian are not learned from Noah and Abraham and Moses. Don't buy the lie that says you don't have to be baptized today to be saved because Abraham wasn't baptized. Folks, that is terrible hermeneutic. We don't look to Abraham for the particulars of what it means to become a Christian. Abraham was not a Christian. And none of the people that lived prior to the day of Pentecost were styled Christians. It was from the day of Pentecost forward that they were styled disciples of Christ and Christians, members of the church, all of those together, the completion, the fullness of that. Folks, you would never learn from the New Testament 
that today Christians need to play mechanical instruments of music to please God. But instead, through a study of the Old and the New Testament, you would learn about the behavior and the character of God, that we are to speak where the Bible speaks. Somebody says, oh, that's just something from the Restoration Movement. No, it's not. 1 Peter 4.11, if anyone speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, notice this in 1 Peter 4.11, if anyone ministers, do it as with the ability which God supplies. See how it always goes back to God and God's oracles? That in all things God may be glorified through Christ Jesus. How can God be glorified through Christ Jesus? When we speak the word of God and when we do the things that God instructs us to do. Though he, Jesus, was a son, he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all those that obey him. Hebrews 5, 8 and 9. If we seek to obey God in His particulars of worship, we will not come along and say, well, it's okay if we change it. I know the New Testament doesn't mention mechanical instruments of music, but the Old Testament does, so that means it's okay. No, it doesn't. No, it does not. The particulars of how to live the Christian life are in the gospel they come from Christ and the apostles. The foundation of Christianity is in the old, but we're not living by what's been taken away at the cross, Colossians 2.14, Ephesians 2.13.14. From the pages of the New Testament, we learn that the church worshiped in song by singing, not playing, singing. And I'll just close that comment out by asking, what verse proves you have the authority or I have the authority to change the way God instructs us to do it? Somebody says, well, there's no verse in the New Testament that says thou shalt not play mechanical instruments of music. There doesn't have to be. Because when, when God and the apostles command us to sing, when we don't do that, we're not obeying God. When we change that or add to it, we're not obeying God. It's not hard to follow, folks. You don't need a so-called commentary from the churches of Christ to understand that. You can learn that from just the pages of the New Testament. You can learn that from the character and behavior of God even from the Old Testament, God was very specific about worship. He didn't want people changing it, adding to it, taking away from it, etc. There is a striking contrast. Here's my conclusion. I hope that you have listened to all of the episodes that I have brought with the theme striking contrast. And if you have, I hope and pray that it's enriched your life and also giving you more study, more learning, more information, more meditation to strengthen your own faith, but also to help reach others who are straying, who have fallen away, or who have never come to God and they're grasped in the clutches of denominationalism and man-made doctrines. Folks, 
We need to beware lest we fall into such a trap too. We need to search the scriptures daily, Acts 17, 11. We need to be honest, Luke 8, 11. And we need to obey Jesus to show him we love him, John 14, 15. There is a striking contrast. And God does care that we do what he says. He's the author of salvation to all those that obey him. That's, that's incontrovertible. Hebrews 5, 8 and 9. We must obey from the heart, Romans 6, 17 and 18. And we must obey because we love Jesus. That is the proof that we do. John 14, 15. John 15, 14. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If this has been a benefit to you, share it with others. God bless, and we'll catch you next time.